This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu. We had looked at the uh, political context, and one of the things that I, I emphasize, and I will emphasize from time to time, about how very, very important it is to understand the politics of a given uh, historical event. And that's no more, uh, nowhere more true than with regard to the Reformation period. Politics and the providence of God played a crucial role in permitting Luther to get his movement underway. It's hard to imagine that he would have survived those first early years had it not been for a, a, a very particular kind of combination of political circumstances. We mentioned particularly the fact that uh, the four wars between Francis I of France and Charles V, the Holy Roman Emperor, uh, that very much distracted Charles V from doing what his duty was, namely to punish such outlaws as Luther. And to complicate matters even further, Charles V was very, very nervous about the Turkish hordes. Their armies were pressing in on the eastern borders of his empire and conquering city after city, defeating army after army, and just breathing down his neck. So, all the while that Luther was at the very early stages of this movement that came to be known as the Reformation, Charles V was distracted. There was a far greater priority to deal with the Turkish question and to deal with Francis I first, far more important than to deal with this monk from a backwater university. The church, we looked at the church, the church, question. Yeah, just out of curiosity, what was the name of the Turkish? Uh, probably numbers. Uh, I think that armies were, were uh, quite substantial in terms of numbers. Suleiman the Magnificent was a was a magnificent uh, strategist, a military strategist. Uh, I mean, I think I mentioned just briefly how when they got to the gates of Vienna, uh, one of the one of the tactics instead of going over the wall, they planned to go under the wall and had their supply lines not become stretched too far, they might very well have succeeded because Vienna was not terribly well defended in terms of numbers. So here's a man who, who is willing to do creative kinds of things to secure his military objective. So he has numbers. He has a very well-disciplined army. I mean, you know, to, to disobey in, in, a, in that sort of context, uh, discipline was very... 
The church is in trouble in this period. And one of the most uh, clear evidences of the fact that the church is in trouble is that in the 14th century, uh, there are at one point two popes and then at another point three different popes claiming allegiance from Christendom. The whole question of apostolic succession is in serious doubt among, Christ, among, among people in the world. And the clerical immorality, both economic and, and moral, is very serious. Uh, I'd mentioned, I think it was, that a, a quarter of all the clergy in the Netherlands had concubines. A third of the clergy in southern Germany had concubines. Uh, there was a concubinage fee where the bishop sort of saw that he couldn't stop a priest from having concubines. That's, a, that's a, somewhat of a derogatory term. I, I don't mean it that way. But having women with whom they cohabitated. Uh, the bishop, seeing that situation, decided to assess them a fee, make a little cash out of this clerical immorality. Uh, the fact of the matter is, is that you have a church that is in decline in terms of papal authority, as well as the, the, the credibility of the clergy is, is in question in large parts of Europe. That's right. I don't remember. I just alluded to that. I didn't go into any detail. There was a period of time where that was the case in the 14th century. Well, there were several. There were three popes at any given point for for several years. Uh, so there weren't just three popes. There were six and nine popes. But three. There were three at, at the same time for a period of years. Who was the third Trying to remember. Rome, Avignon, no, no, uh, it, it may have been Bologna, but, but I'm, I don't, don't quote me on that. I, I, I can't recall at the moment, but there were three popes at one point. So we've got a, a church in crisis, and most everyone realized that there were, were, were these serious problems. And one of the striking things we point out as we ended last time is that uh, you would think that the lay piety, the, the, the piety of the average person might also suffer decline. What happened is it in fact went up. It's, it, went, it, it increased. There are, it manifested itself in, I think, what we might judge to be somewhat superstitious rites, pilgrimages and relics and all those kinds of things. But there seems to be a, a, a fervor, a, a deep desire among the people to find some outlet to worship God. So they're turning people away from God. What they saw in the church somehow this this reverse effect. And they wanted to find uh, ways of expressing and, and seeking God. And the other thing I want to say very quickly again is that it's always a mistake for Protestants to hear all these negative things that I've just mentioned and to somehow conclude that the church in its entirety from top to bottom in every case was bad and everybody was immoral and everybody was doing wrong things. The fact of the matter is there were individual popes, there were a considerable number of bishops and other clergymen who did try, who did make efforts toward reform. Please don't miss that. 
that idea. It's helpful to think of it like Israel's trade with judges. There was a sense that everybody did report it by their own eyes, but even in the period of justice, Right, right. And I would say, you said use the word occasional. I, I would say that there was a significant uh, group and it, for, for a period of time, people who really tried to make a change. And there were individual bishops in their own diocese who did make fundamental changes. Uh, I, I mentioned, in fact, just to mention one guy offhand, uh, there was a famous archbishop in Spain. Uh, Cardinal Cicernos Jimenez was his name. And here was an archbishop, the highest ecclesiastical figure in Spain at this time. And he was doing things like encouraging people to have Bible studies in their own villages. So you do find interesting examples of dedicated higher-ups who are promoting such things as Bible study among the people and encouraging bishops to, to actually go to their diocese and take up residency and to oversee the spiritual welfare of the people. So you do find examples of that and so it's, it's always right for us. I talk to you about fairness to the other side and, and as you do your papers. Well that applies to me too and as an historian I need to remind you that it, it's, it's, it's a pretty dark picture. It's a picture the Catholic Church, the picture of the Catholic Church is one that is pretty dark by and large. But there were glimmers of light at various points. Cicernos Jimenez. X-I-M-E-N-E-Z. Yeah. Okay, let's get to the intellectual context. I would try to be brief because I want to get to Luther this morning. So, politics, church, and now some of the key intellectual sort of movements. I'm going to be brief here. We could spend a lot of time on this. This is one of the areas that I'm, I'm terribly interested in myself, but, but I need to press on here and just give you some basic ideas so we can actually get to, to uh, the Reformation. Two of the most important intellectual movements uh, in Western thought occurred during the years from about 1200 to 1500, the Middle Ages. And these two intellectual movements are known as scholasticism and humanism. Scholasticism and humanism. And it's really essential. If you want to understand the Reformation, you do have to have some working knowledge of what scholasticism was in all of its variety as well as humanism in all of its variety. Uh, the two movements are somewhat interrelated. Related in this sense. Humanism is generally understood to be a negative response to scholasticism. Humanism is generally understood to be a negative response to scholasticism. So there is some negative relationship. First, let's look at scholasticism. So we are now subpoint A. Scholasticism. Scholasticism was one of is one of the most despised intellectual movements 
uh, even today. Uh, you, you will find, in fact, among modern scholars, a certain disdain for scholasticism, as if it were uh, somehow uh, less than than appropriate, less than 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 a fruitful period of of uh, intellectual endeavor. You know the English word dunce. If I were to call someone a dunce, I'd be saying, "You're not too bright. You're kind of kind of dumb." Uh, the word dunce derives from the name of one of the leading scholastics, one of the leading scholastic theologians, a man named Duns, D-U-N-S, Scotus. So the term dunce, and you can see some of that negative uh, attitude towards scholasticism when you elevate uh, some modification of his name to be equivalent to someone who is stupid. The schoolmen, or the scholastics, are sort of represented, pictured as endlessly debating obscure and irrelevant points, such as how many angels can dance on the head of a pen. Now, the fact of the matter is, medievals did debate those kinds of questions, uh, mostly as uh, just exercises to sharpen their logical skills. So there was a pedagogical purpose to it. It wasn't mindless, as is so often uh, perceived. There was a method to these kinds of things, to sharpen the logical debating skills of students, theological students in particular. Now, the humanists uh, are the ones who created the word scholastic. And they used the word scholastic uh, as a word to mock those who belong to scholasticism. It's a word that is seen as synonymous with arid, <laughs> futile, and trivial. And the purpose of this term is to discredit the scholastics. So the humanists and the scholastics were not what you would call bosom friends as movements. Now, the humanists, let me go on here, the humanists didn't have much interest in distinguishing the various subgroups within scholasticism. In fact, they just lumped all scholastics together. And that's a not a very good thing. Uh, there's much more variety and complexity in medieval scholasticism than the humanists were willing to give them credit for. So, the word scholasticism is, one, a pejorative term created by the humanists. Pejorative, and it's also imprecise because it doesn't uh, take into consideration the great variety of schools of thought within scholasticism. And yet, we're stuck with it. It's the term that has come to be uh, employed to describe one of the major intellectual movements in Western thought in that period from about 1200 to 500. Was there a quick question? That you... I was wondering what the scholastics called themselves. Uh, <coughs> theologians. <laughs> Let's work toward a definition. How do we define scholasticism? Well, the first thing 
you have to say is it's very, very difficult to define scholasticism. It's difficult to find a definition that will do justice to all of the nuances uh, of that term. (coughs) But we can make a provisional stab at a definition, uh, what I call a working definition. And this is not, I need to say it ahead of time, this is not absolutely comprehensive, but it does begin to give us some idea of what we're getting at. We may define scholasticism as, this is one of those kinds of things you want to have a red pencil and circle, put a star by it, and say, probable test question, right above that someplace in big red letters. Scholasticism may be defined as that medieval movement. That medieval movement, we're talking from 1200 to 1500 A.D., which placed emphasis upon rational justification of religious belief. A medieval movement from 1200 to 1500, which placed emphasis upon rational justification of religious belief and a systematic presentation of those. Now, uh, you're probably aware that some of the characteristics of the scholastics is they liked, one of the things they were trying to do is to organize theology into categories. They are it's, it's an organizational kind of idea where you organize and interrelate the categories of theology. It has a lot to do with methodology. Scholasticism does. It has a lot to do with method. It has a lot to do with making fine, subtle distinctions. And it has to do with trying to achieve a comprehensive theological system. I mean, the great work that, although wasn't finished, was one of the greatest attempts in the history of theological writing was that of Aquinas. He's considered the ultimate scholastic who tried in his Summa to put together a comprehensive theological system that made sense with itself. So he may be seen as one of the, the preeminent exponents of high scholasticism. So it's a method, stresses fine distinctions, and tries to achieve a comprehensive theological system. The three most influential scholastic writers were, first, Aquinas. And just to sort of give you a reference point, let me give you his dates. 1224 to 1274. Scotus, Duns Scotus, dates 1266 to 1308. And William of Ockham, 1280 to 1399. 1280 to 1349, I'm sorry, 1349. That was a very long life. O-C-K-H-A-M. There are other spellings. 
uh, but that's the one that you have to know in this class. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, there's, I mean, there is, I suspect, a very natural desire to put things to organize uh, ideas. Uh, but what scholasticism is, it really gives greater emphasis to this uh, than previous. I mean, you, for example, when I, in the early church, when we talked about that, you didn't find a lot of systematic theologies. Uh, you have bits and pieces here. People are trying to figure out what Christianity is. Uh, but once you've reached past that stage where you know what it is, the next thing you do historically is to try to organize it. Well, no, no. In, in, in non-Christian academic circles, you probably won't find very many people who have nice things to say about scholasticism unless somebody is a medieval historian themselves. But generally, I mean, even today, I think the word scholastic has a, a, a pejorative connotation. I, I mean, I think of it, well, the only word I think of that has, still has a pejorative connotation to people who are non-Christians is the word Puritan. I mean, in our circles, Puritan's probably a pretty good thing. But I can't tell you how many times I've sat in classes where someone, when they said the word Puritan, they sort of hissed it. Puritan! You know, kind of idea. Uh, they're, they're, they're self right. It's, it's a word that kind of connotes self righteous in the minds of many people. Uh, and the word scholastic uh, is, is, uh, has the connotation of people who are very dry, who are not really in touch personally with these doctrines. Uh, they're, just, they're just logic choppers. So there is still a little bit in the world at large, uh, sort of a negative connotation even now. And toward the latter part of the 14th, 15th century, you have the emergence of humanism, which for them, humanism was the worst. It, it lost touch with a lot of things, but, but it, it, it becomes so focused on, on logic that had lost touch with the real... When you look at uh, the systems of Aquinas and Scotus, those are generally called the Via Antiqua. The ancient way. Via Antiqua. Can you all see that? The Via Antiqua. And the, uh, the way of William of Ockham and his uh, ilk are generally considered to be the, the Via Moderna, the modern way. So even in the, in the scholastic period, there is some, there's the, a, a fundamental distinction of development between the Via Antiqua and the Via Moderna. So Aquinas and Scotus both belong to the Via Antiqua and Occam, the Via Moderna. So my, my point in mentioning that is simply to suggest that there are different schools under this broad umbrella term called scholasticism. And in some cases, and I'll point one out here in just a moment, there are fundamental theological differences, sometimes within these broad categories. So, scholasticism is a very broad term. If you find any good uh, text on medieval philosophy or medieval theology, one of the things they'll tell you up front is that nobody has ever put together a, a fully complete and adequate definition of what it means to be a scholastic. It's still uh, a matter of a great amount of scholarly debate. 
uh, scholasticism, one of the things that I should mention here is that the theology of Augustine was the starting point for medieval theology. It is not often appreciated that particularly uh, Via Antiqua really tried its level best to be Augustinian. And I think that there is, is even in, in Aquinas, a real serious effort to take on Augustine's theology. Uh, it's probably less so in the case of someone <laughs> like Occam. At any rate, it needs to be understood that the starting point, even if it's not always the ending point, the starting point for medieval theology was Augustine. And the attempt in scholasticism beginning in the 12th and 13th centuries to find a way, a method, to systematize and expand upon Augustine's theology. So there's this attempt. And the answer uh, that they found as to a method, how to organize Augustine's theology, was found in the late 12th and early 13th century with the recovery of the writings of Aristotle in the quest to find a method of organizing theology. It seems that in the Middle Ages, early, late 13th, early, uh, late 12th, early 13th century, there was this revival and a recovery of the writings, the methodological writings of Aristotle. And so by 1270 AD, Aristotle, in terms of method, came to dominate theological thinking. It's very interesting. In the early part of the 13th century, uh, 12th century, now, the University of Paris, as you probably know, was the center of the theological universe in the Middle Ages. And there is a, a progression. One can see that in the early 12th century, when Aristotle's writings are first brought forward as a method of organizing theology, the University of Paris says that students will be thrown out if they bring in Aristotle. But within about 70 years... Aristotle is taught in every class of theology. So very quickly, the appropriation of Aristotelian methodology entered very quickly into the very heart, the very center of theological education at the University of Paris. Now, there was some opposition, to be sure. I mean, after all, uh, this was bringing in a pagan from the outside, Aristotle, to bring him in and ask him to organize your theology. So there was opposition, but that opposition was pretty much rolled over because it was, he was found to be very useful and very logical, despite the fact that he was a pagan philosopher. And it was judged that Aristotle was the best way to organize Christian theology according to his methodology. One, for, one can see, for example in Aquinas' proofs for the existence of God. Those are based very clearly upon Aristotelian uh, thinking. 
Now, one thing I want to do pretty quickly is to point something out to you that you probably won't get in most uh, classes uh, in history of Christianity. Uh, it's, it's a fairly recent development, and only if you've been reading in late medieval thought would you be aware of this. But I want to draw your attention to one other particular school of medieval scholastics, Scola Augustiniana Moderna. Now, it's generally understood that this means the modern school of Augustine. The modern school of Augustine. The Scola Augustiniana Moderna. Now, notice this phrase here, Moderna, on the end. There is a sense in which it's generally categorized, this sub-movement, or this movement is a sub-movement of the Via Moderna, of Occam. And there are some parallels between Occam's thinking, which most have said uh, judged to be Pelagian, and the Scola Augustiniana Moderna. But what's very interesting is that the Scola Augustiniana, the modern Augustinian school, makes a radical departure from the Via Moderna and particularly Occam and moves very self-consciously in an Augustinian direction. There is, in the 14th century, a revival of Augustinian theology. And it centers in this movement that scholars have only recently identified the Augustinian school of the 14th century. And indeed, we can trace at least, it's a, it's a minor movement to be sure. It's not mainstream, although some of the people involved were major theologians of the period. I'll mention a couple. But anyway, what happened is, is that within the broader scholasticism, within the, the broad Augustinianism of Thomas Aquinas, there was another movement the Scola Augustiniana Moderna that was a, what I call an intensified Augustinianism. It is more true to Augustine's, Augustine's theology and in some cases it probably even goes beyond uh, out, uh, outdoes Augustine's own thinking moving in that direction. So, the Scola Augustiniana is strongly Augustinian in its theology. Matt? So how would it in any way be a part of the... Good question, but I don't want to get into it. Uh, just because, because my answer will be something you probably won't understand. Uh, the one thing they held in common was what's called philosophical termism. Okay? And unless you know what philosophical termism is, it's going to be a little difficult. <laughs> I'll summarize, I'll, I'll be real broad, broad language here. There are some philosophical parallels between the Scola Augustiniana Moderna and the broader Occamist Via Moderna, okay? But philosophically. Theologically, they are miles apart. Uh, Occamist uh, theology tended in a much more Pelagian direction. Uh, and, and, and with that, associated with that, are certain philosophical ideas that were neither Pelagian nor Augustinian. They're just philosophical ideas about epistemology. And this movement did share some philosophical ideas, particularly epistemological ideas. Uh, but when it came to theology, 
the Scola Augustiniana went in a very, in fact, it went on a self-consciously anti-Pelagian track. Is that helpful, just, just in, in, broad, in the broadest terms? If you're interested in this kind of question, uh, read Heiko Obermann, Harvest of Medieval Theology. Uh, if you can get through that, uh, you're, 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 you're a fine student. That, that's, that's fairly heavy going. Were they self-consciously um, going against the accretion of, of, um, of, of conciliar decisions that were diluting Augustine's very vigorous rejection of Pelagianism? I don't know that they're necessarily anti-conciliar. Uh, what they are is anti-Pelagian. And this for them, and I'm going to mention some of the folks individual, individually, uh, they're concerned about theology, n uh, not so much ecclesiology in, in terms of the structure of the church and who makes the final authorities. <coughs> are, you, are you with me? Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think that's qu quite so much of an issue here. They're focusing on soteriology primarily. At any rate... One of the er, let me just say this: uh, the Scola Augustiniana Moderna was very pessimistic about man's ability to contribute to his own salvation. In fact, uh, the strongest advocates say man cannot, in any way, thus distinguishing them from Erasmus, cannot in any way contribute to their own salvation. So that puts them in striking contrast to Erasmus and Occam. And they believe, therefore, that salvation was a matter 100% of God's grace and that all, to, to undeserving sinners. So salvation is 100% God's grace. Well, the earliest manifestations of this, this new Augustinianism, this intensified Augustinianism, is a man named Thomas Bradwood. He was the Archbishop of Canterbury in England. He was at the University of Oxford. And he wrote a furious attack in the 14th century, uh, made an, a, a furious attack on Pelagianism as he saw it in the church. He wrote a book entitled The Case of God Against the Pelagians. And he takes the strongest possible Augustinian stance and just devastates the uh, the opposition. He criticizes his church in the strongest terms. In fact, one might wonder. Uh, there are certain parallels, at least, between the, the vehemence and the, the almost the anger that Bradwardine has and that of Luther against the what he, the, the perceived Pelagianism that Luther saw as well. Uh, so that's the first manifestation. There is some speculation that perhaps. John Wycliffe, the morning star of the Reformation, may have read this writing of Thomas Bradwardine, his countrymen. Both were English. Uh, that has not been verified. It's just been suspected. But the most important <coughs> exponent of the modern school, uh, Augustinian school is a man named Gregory of Remini. Gregory of Remini a theologian at the University of Paris, a general of his order. He belonged to the Augustinian order. 
and he was a very, very influential theologian. This audio lecture is brought to you by RTS on iTunes U at the virtual campus of Reformed Theological Seminary. To listen to other lectures and to access additional resources, please visit us at itunes.rts.edu. For additional information on how to take distance education courses for credit towards a fully accredited Master of Arts in Religion degree, please visit our website at virtual.rts.edu.